Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everybody. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. So this is the second week in our four-part series on Richard Ramirez. Where are we starting today? Well, we ended um, on the first episode. We ended with just right before he started his killing spree okay, in right. 1984. So right. um, we're going to start today with the first part, which is a little introduction to the killings and his criminal profile. So how he presented, we won't get into the gruesome gory details yet until episode three, but I might, I'm just going to introduce some of the early stuff um, that gives us a sense of how he felt and what charged him and emoted through all of this. So between 1984 and 1985, he's now in LA He's moved there, um, and he is has now committed several acts of sexual assault, murder, attempted murder, and burglaries. And this will last from 1984 until his arrest on August 29th, 1985. Ramirez's first victim, her name was Jenny Vincow. Um, she was burglarized and sexually assaulted during a burglary in her home. Some of this information, by the way, is on, you can look up crime. It's called Crime Investigation, the year is 2014. Um, if you just look it up online and type in his name, you'll get some of these statistics. So, and then some of this is also coming from Carlo's book as well that we talked about in the first episode. So um, he starts with her. And this this first one is really what makes him realize how much he's in love with the sadistic, um, just killing, stealing, disempowering. This is what really gives him this appetite is this first kill. Okay. And so nine months after Jenny, Ramirez attacks Angela Barrios and kills her roommate, Dale Okazaki. So nine months in between. As, as, we, as he progresses, I believe the, the time in between definitely um get shorter so that was actually if you really think about it nine months is a long time especially Mm -hmm. if you're building that insatiability around it yeah uh and then he's unsatisfied by attacking and killing them um so he ends up stabbing sai leon Yu the same night Mm. So this is now where it's like, okay. So if you think about it, he does the first one. He probably sits on it for a while, thinks about how it made him feel. Is it something he's going to do again? Nine months later, he does it again. He isn't really satisfied with the way that it went down. So he has to go do it again that night to somebody else. The frenzy, we've talked about The frenzy begins. And also just the perfectionism around... He had to feel a certain way. It had to go down a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Barrios lived, I believe. And one of the reasons why he was upset, because he killed her roommate, but I believe that she survived. Mm-hmm. So I think that was part of the dissatisfaction is he didn't really get closure. Right. So the <coughs> appetite me. had to be. Yeah, satiated as much yep. as it could be. 
Gotcha. So then throughout the next five months, he repeats the same assault with his victims in which he attack his attacks escalate rapidly. Um, murdered, injured, and sexually assaulted 22 other people until his arrest. Okay. So again, it just slowly, you know, it starts real slow. And then once he figures out how much, um, how empowering this is, then he just goes on a complete frenzy. Yeah, I'm not hearing the years or months of experimenting that we often mm -hmm. hear. I mean, I get that as a teenager... And a younger person, he was stealing and attempted molestation of attempted rape. Attempted rape. So there, I, I get. I guess we would say those were mm -hmm. moments when he was um, getting together. Right, but he hadn't killed anyone. You no. don't really hear about him killing. I, I'm not sure, but there's there's nothing in there about like torturing animals mm -hmm. or. So it really is interesting. And then, or if you take somebody like Dennis Rader, who did this over decades, mm -hmm. right, and really took a lot of time in between, this is, this is, and when we're going to get into this in this episode, the different ways that he, his crime scenes were so different that it threw everybody off because as we know, and we've talked about with the other serial killers, there was a methodology and almost somewhat of like a regimented way that they would do this that made them much easier to identify. Yeah. Ramirez was incredibly disorganized. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you look at someone like Bundy, who was, um, I think more intelligent to a certain extent. I mean, he feigned a lot of his intelligence, but right. he was certainly more organized, I think. Better faker. A better faker. But Ramirez, it was really like, he was like the Tasmanian devil. I mean, yeah. he was incredibly disorganized. It's like, who's available? An opportunist mm -hmm. in a way. Bundy was, but he was much more strategic. Where Ramirez, it was like, whose door is unlocked? Who's, it was incredibly disorganized. Well, and if I jump ahead just for one second, it's yeah. like, it doesn't surprise me that he was only, that Ramirez was only able to execute these types of crimes for a very short period of time. Yeah. Even and though he night. was prolific, <laughs> even though he was prolific in yeah. that short period of time, because you have to have some sort of self-control to be able to go that long decades. Of, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why so many people are blown away by Dennis Rader because of his ability to have a whole normal life on the side. Ramirez didn't, he, he wasn't really hiding in plain sight. People knew no, he, he, was. he was crazy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. His whole family knew it. Um, so yeah, great. That's a great point where someone like that's not going to last very long. So he presented, he always wore all black with an ACDC cap. That was sort of his, his costume. He was described as exploiting the night. Um, I like that quote, that saying, because he attacked people in their most vulnerable state while they were asleep in their own home. If you think about how awful you think we should feel like when we go to bed at night, we're safe, we're in our home, when our bed or doors are locked. He looked for that sort of vulnerability. Now, all attackers will, they do look for vulnerability. You know, people sleeping on the beach or people's backs, but in your home asleep is a whole other level, I think. And a sexual violation. And a sexual violation. Um, he was known for wearing a vias, which is important when we get into the capture and the evidence. Okay. Um, he would look for dimly lit houses with unlocked doors, or he would actually remove the screens from windows 
and then attack people in their homes. But he also knew how to pick locks. He, he tried, I think he tried to find the homes that were unlocked. And remember, this is Los Angeles in the 80s. He went to a lot of suburbs of people who lived in, in safe neighborhoods and didn't lock up at night, mm-hmm. right? After Ramirez, everyone started locking their windows. Yeah. It really became mm-hmm. this thing. And I, I think sometimes that's lost in, that that's been lost since this case of how much people do that now because of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially in suburban neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. Right. So he was known to smell of leather and his breath was bad due to rotting teeth. Remember early on he started to let his hygiene go. So he probably didn't brush his teeth teeth start to rot and his eyes were described as demonic so if you look at a lot of bundy's pictures from court or his headshots mugshots headshots he would have liked him to be headshots yeah. mugshots he didn't look as crazy Mm-mm, no he looked in he looked like he was running for republican office well and that's the difference between a disorganized and an organized killer absolutely right? like- so this guy when you look at him he looks insane mm-hmm. um that's why he needed to do it at night just by a function of even surviving in his criminality for a year and a half or whatever it is. Yeah, he would not have... I like mean, daytime, no. No, no, no. He was scary. So clearly he had no friends. He was very untrusting of people. He was paranoid. Mm-hmm. He was paranoid. Um, he was easily triggered when he was looked at in the eye. And we know as mental health professionals that that's a, a very vulnerable an intimate connection with somebody. It's mm-hmm. a lot of reasons why uh, people on the spectrum have a hard time holding eye contact. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people not in our field don't realize that eye contact is a part of the assessment that we're doing because lots and lots of people that have experienced profound trauma have difficulty with eye contact. Um Obviously, certain brain disorders, certain types of uh, mental illness. Neurodevelopmental. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's part of... Sometimes it's cultural. You know, there are cultural sometimes components. It's cultural. So it's a, yeah. it's a piece. It can be a piece on all the axes. Yeah, of, for um, sure. Eye contact. But for him, it, I, I think it really was like the, the intimacy. The, it, he didn't want anyone to be able to read him, see in him. Um, he becomes obsessed with eyes, too. And I'll talk... We'll get into that. So he... Um, he was known for shooting up cocaine, mm-hmm. watching MTV, listening to heavy metal music, fantasizing about sexual violence, and watching people suffer. So he was obsessed with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, he, he believed in his heart that the more heinous and vicious his assaults, the more Satan would be pleased and afford him his blessings. That was the delusion. That was the delusion. Okay. So... As he continued to do this and get away with it, it was the reaffirmation of I'm doing Satan, aren't I aren't I doing good? Aren't I doing well? Whatever. Yeah. Validation. Um, and so he would increase the intensity of it as he went into these assaults. He eventually had a pentagram tattooed on his palm, which a lot of the 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 pictures from the courts and stuff, you'll see him holding up his hand. He's, he was obsessed with having p- power over all things. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, The Exorcist, and Dracula were great inspirations and, and a turn-on to him. And if you think about Dracula and the character, I mean, we've talked a lot about Dracula on the show. Yeah, the, the emotional vampirism. And the seduction and all of that. Um, he wishes that that was, that was yeah. who he was trying to yeah. 
be, but obviously not in any way. No, and Dracula was was way more, uh, he was much smoother. Well, organized. <laughs> yeah, Ramirez came in like a bull in a china shop. And clean. Yeah. Sure. Uh, his favorite film was Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he described it as, it was ahead of its time. It portrayed something that really exists in human nature, but nobody will admit it. He talks about this later in his interviews, about how we all have this in us. Mm-hmm. Um and so that was a really big part of what he believed that we all had the capacity to do what he did, but, but, um, some of us just choose to, mm. uh, control that impulse. Yeah. It's that kind of characterization where he loses me, obviously. And yeah. he's, you know, um, mentally compromised. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying I agree with anything he's saying necessarily, but I, you know, the, the, the seed of that where, light and dark and shadowy and we're all capable of it xyz i don't agree with a lot of that but i i can see how a healthy person could take that and sort of say all right you know like if i'm his if i'm sitting with him and i'm interviewing him and i want to get information out of him mm-hmm. that's the piece i would authentically try to tune into mm-hmm. i would sort of authentically be saying to him that's really interesting. Tell me more about our dark and light sides, you know, because that's a piece where I could just tear out a little tiny, eeny weeny bit of humanity and truth from his childhood. And then I would kind of want to ask more about that. And of course, he would go fluidly into all of his delusions, most likely with just a little bit of prompting. I mean, I don't think he takes a lot of... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> He'll talk. And, I, and I've watched some interviews with him and uh, he, you know, like like Manson, like Bundy, all of that. It's like the there's a lot of words coming out, not a ton of sense um, to me. Uh, it's 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 jumbled. It's yeah. kind of mixed. He up. He tries to it, make it sound profound. He tries. Yeah. He's trying to sound smart. And there's just there isn't there's an emptiness, and totally. we've talked about that yeah. before. It's just, yeah. And he's he. I mean, if you really listen to a lot of his interviews, you're like, what? And I think in the the clip we we that I'll play today. Mm. I think the interviewer even says like, man, you just have a script or whatever. Yeah. That's this one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, I I think we can clearly state that he was obsessed with extreme violence. Um, any films that were sexual or had a sexual occult nature to it. And he was sexually charged by brutality. And if you listen to the first episode, it explains why, Mm -hmm. how that all came about. So um, here would be a brief description of one of his assaults. Sexually charged by the violence, the torture, he returned to Nettie Lang, ripped her nightgown off and raped her. Satan, he knew, would be pleased with his work for it was cruel, brutal, and truly bestial. He ate a banana he found in the kitchen drank a a can of Mountain Dew and a Coke, urinated and left carrying a bloodstained pillowcase with the sister's meager belongings in it over his shoulder like some Santa Claus from hell. That sounds about how we all picture him. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the reality is much different than what our imaginations. And and really, if you read through all of, and I read through every single one of his uh, killing, uh, every single one of his murders um, and or assaults, that's exactly, I think that sums it up so well. He comes in, he ransacks the house, he violently assaults people, he uh, <coughs> isolates the children, he locks them up, he rapes the mother, he kills the father, he takes their belongings, and he leaves. I mean, it's just, it, it really is like something, like the Santa Claus from hell is a really great way. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think this might be a good place to stop and take a break. And we're going to come back and talk about sexual sadism. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi there, this is Terra Talk. We're back from the break. So we've talked a little bit about Ramirez having what we call a sexual sadism disorder. We've ref- or made reference to it, at least. So let's first talk about what paraphilias are. A paraphilia described, um, it's described as a type of mental disorder that involves an obsession with unusual and or taboo sexual activities. So these acti- activities may include inappropriate and or non-consenting sexual partners. These partners may at times include animals, even children. And then all types of paraphilias are associated with the recurrent sexual arousals, fantasies, as well as urges that can lead to real behaviors, which is really important. The fantasy piece of it, when I was working with sex offenders, we've talked about this in other episodes, the fantasy can be seen almost as rehearsal. So for someone who has a paraphilic disorder, the reason why it's so important for the right type of clinician who's forensically trained to work with them is because just simply talking about it, if you don't understand the person's intent, they could actually be rehearsing what they're about to do versus actually processing and trying to work through the impulse and really being able to know the difference when you're sitting with them is very important. Um, some of them get off just by talking about it versus like, how do I control it? So sexual sadism disorder is a paraphilia related mental disorder that occurs when a person gains sexual satisfaction by inflicting pain and or causing fear in their sexual partner. So this is very, very different from BDSM Mm -hmm. because the pain is not consensual and it's causing fear and shame and hum- humiliation without any sort of consent from the other person. So that's what gets them off is that it is non-consensual, it's violent, it's humiliating. Um, Sadis is the name given to the individual with a confirmed and definite diagnosis of sexual sadism. So the sexual sadist will not be able to receive the sexual satisfaction unless his or her partner experiences pain and humiliation at his or her hands. So a sexual sadist may have been um, sexually or physically abused during childhood, but that is really not always the case. Yeah, there's no, yeah, you have to have had this or that happen. In fact, a lot of sex offenders I worked with were not um, sexually abused as children. Mm -hmm. Some were. Some definitely were. But the main characteristic of sexual sadism is the euphoria associated with the sexual arousal from inflicting this kind of pain and humiliation. So there is, um, it's like a drug to them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I imagine his drug use that we've mentioned a few times here was uh, medicating. Yeah. 
some of these uh, predilections. Absolutely. And that you'll find that a lot with uh, sex offenders too, is the use of drugs and alcohol as they commit their crimes. And so he was using a lot of cocaine and um, doing a lot of drugs. He clearly had an insatiability for killing and rape. Yeah. More than any serial killer they had seen up until this point. Um, which I think is a pretty loaded statement. Mm-hmm, very. Because there have been a lot of serial killers before him at this point. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the detectives, which I'll talk about in another episode, and the people working on this case, which were some high-profile detectives, basically said, this is the worst we have ever seen it. Wow. And um, part of it had to do with the fact that he couldn't even wait a week or a month, but within hours could feel the lust for murder again. Now, we know that Bundy had evenings where he, you know, he left the sorority house, the Chi Omega, and he went out and did it again. But Ramirez was, his was compounded by the sexual sadism and the how violent he was and how he could leave one house and go do that all over again um yeah, within it's just hours unbridled and insatiable it, it, that's perfect a perfect way to put it and the, although bundy did that i think one of one evening this was like ramirez's thing mm-hmm. this is what he would do it it was like a a rabid dog he couldn't stop himself so why was he so hard to catch mm. you know why what was it about him that made him so different from a lot of the killers before him, serial killers before him. Um, the detectives will say that he was one of the hardest people to pin down. And this was at a time where, and this came up in the, the show uh, Unbelievable, where the jurisdictions sometimes didn't talk to one another. But even when they had... The evidence, like there's certain things that just didn't add up, um, that that the scenes didn't always match, the profile didn't always match, and it was incredibly confusing. He would use a variety of weapons. His crime scenes would look significantly different from one murder to the next, and that's really unusual. Not necessarily unusual of a disorganized killer, but I think before him there were a lot of organ, much you know there were organized. Uh, much more organized than Ramirez. Yeah, disorganized killers are far harder to profile, yep. harder to catch because you're not following a linear progression, like a linear thought process. Yeah. So most serial killers will use very up-close and personal means, such as blunt force trauma, multiple stab wounds. Very rarely will they shoot somebody because it's considered uh too cold and impersonal and he would do that he would just shoot somebody yeah and so that was really they were like what because if you think about it um for someone like him especially who loved the sadistic this the quality of this um for him to just shoot someone it didn't feel very personal so it was very confusing to the forensic experts that would go into these crime scenes he would take a 22 caliber to kill the male and then sexually assault a non-resistant female. So if she did, if she was resistant, then he would kill her. But if she wasn't resistant, he would rape her. The men he viewed as an obstacle to his lust. So naturally by being in the way, he would Mm -hmm. take them out. He'd kill them Mm -hmm. right. And sometimes right in front of their own kids. 
He's playing out like a psychodrama. Yep. Yep. And again, the, the humiliation, the pain, all of that. Like he loved watching people's reactions to this. Um, it begs the question if there was that in his family of origin between right? his mom and his dad. He I know, because they don't... The mind boggles. Like, where did he get that? They don't talk about it. They only talk about dad's violence towards the kids, but Is never like between just mom from and Mike, dad. you know? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, so on one victim, he used thumb cuffs uh, and then beat and sexually assaulted her, but let her live. So he would chain her up or whatever, beat her sexually assaulted her then then sometimes they he would go get all of the jewelry and money from the house and then he'd go back and rape her again and like um earlier i was saying that he'd go into the kitchen have something to eat piss all over everything i mean he was just, he was like a like a primitive animal you know just yeah all his choices are primitive too like totally you were talking primitive. about with the gunshots like i would imagine that was just impulsive mm -hmm. so and he's on drugs throughout this whole thing? Was he taking cocaine? Cocaine? Okay. Yeah. So he had a fascination with eyes. And on a couple, at least one, if not two victims, he took, cut the eyes out as souvenirs. And he would, he would gouge them out, um, never to be found. Eyes were not found. But I, I think that part of that was, again, if they were looking at him in the eyes, um, he would he would remove them as a way of not having that intimate, you know, almost like tapped into the shame or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Uh, each crime scene would, would add something new. So as he progressed, he would start adding a pentagram to the wall, more symbols of the occult would be demonstrated or of an occult, uh, in the state of California at this time, many people began to wonder if there, if it was more than one person, due to the society um, just getting over the Manson murders. So they were sitting there going, oh my gosh, is this another one of those cults that are hitting up people's homes? Because how could one man do this kind of damage? I mean, if two, three homes are hit in one night, how likely is it that one person is doing that kind of damage? And yeah. then having a different, different scene in every home. If he was more organized, he would have been a cult leader. Yeah. In many ways, he could have been. He could have been. Yeah. Except he was so, he was so much of a recluse and loved working alone. He didn't need the, he needed the worship. He needed the, not the worship. He needed the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The. Like accolades or recognition? No, or? I think, I think he needed his prey, for lack of better words, to be terrified of him. Mm -hmm. That's where his supply came from Fear. versus like Manson who loved the show and the people following him. And the, I don't think Ramirez really cared, cared about anyone really looking up to him in that way. I think he was more invested in how his victims saw him feared, him. feared him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And that there's the sexual sadism piece, right? As he was aroused, when he was the last one to look them in the eye and take the life from them, that was so empowering for him and why uh, he was so brutal okay. in his power, killings. Yeah, power yeah. and control. Um, sorry. Okay, so I'm going to move a little bit into his... I just want to look at something here. Sorry, everybody. I actually think this is probably a good place to take a break and we're going to move into his psychological profile after the break. Okay. We'll take a break.
Okay, we're back from the break. So we're going to get a little bit into his psychological profile now. Um, he Ramirez had a criminal record from his youth. So we know that that's always a red flag. It began with petty crimes such as robberies in 1977. He was in juvenile detention. And then years later, he engaged in criminal acts such as burglary and car theft in 1983, which led to a sentence in jail where he was released in, in April 1984, right before he started his killing spree. So I wanted to talk a little bit about just some early risk factors, because when we think about someone who ends up with an antisocial personality or uh, a psychopath, a lot of times we'll see these early signs from childhood. So I, I definitely think we could rule in a conduct disorder, which a conduct disorder is a repetitive and persistent pattern of behavior in which the basic rights of others or major age appropriate societal norms or rules are violated. So we definitely know that um, his he did have a conduct disorder and he was certainly um, antisocial uh, since he was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, probably starting in eighth or ninth grade, we started to see this. Yeah, and conduct disorder is what you get. Yep. Uh, diagnosed. And then when you become an adult, it often leads to antisocial disorder, which I, yeah, I think I feel real comfortable. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you think? Yeah. 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 He grew up in a house filled with physical violence, coupled with low socioeconomic status. Um, so, and the reason why I say that is, I, I want to be clear here, I'm not profiling people who are low on SES, but there are a lot more stressors mm -hmm. when you grow up in a in a home that really has to, uh, money is very thin. And, and, you know, remember we talked about in the first episode, the, the brother having to go through all those surgeries and both the parents working. So that put a lot of stress on the home. He also witnessed a murder when he was a child. He became addicted to cocaine. He lost interest in school. These are all huge, huge risk factors. So if we were doing what's called an HCR 20 on him, which is a clinical inventory of historical, clinical, and risk management factors, historical factors are what we consider static risk factors, meaning they cannot change. Um, so, all of the stuff that happened to him as a child, that is imprinted, that is static, that cannot be changed. And the more static risk factors someone has, the more likely this turns more into a characterological trait versus what we would consider a dynamic risk, which are things like they don't lack a support system. Well, that can change. We can get them a support system, right? Mm, yeah. So static risk factors are incredibly dangerous because they can't be changed. We can't rewrite history. No. He engaged in petty theft to fuel his drug habit. Mm -hmm. um, exposing, he was exposed to violence and crime. He dropped out of school and became increasingly interested in Satanism. I don't know. All red flag, Shannon. Yeah, thinking, thinking yes. Mm -hmm. Thinking if yes. If I saw them, uh, if I saw him as a sixteen-year-old, you know, if he had been removed and put into the system and mm -hmm. perhaps came across my caseload or what have you, um, yeah. Huge risk, huge risk factors. Yeah, he's a he. He was a complete mess. <laughs> Clinical it'd be very, speaking, it'd be, it would be very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult at that point to see any way out of the sort of fate accompli of where his life was going to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Just sad, but very sad. So, um, 
I want to introduce something called the trauma control model or the diathesis stress model. So these, these are very similar models, but they emphasize how genetic predisposition in conjunction with sociological and psychological influences, trauma, attachment, environment, interact with other factors and circumstances in someone's life and may play a role in determining the likelihood or trajectory of criminal psychopathy. So I have a clip here of Ramirez, who's uh, how he describes himself being interviewed by Mike Watkiss. Did you kill 13 people? It would be improper for me to comment on my LA convictions and on my pending case here in San Francisco. Why? Because of my appeals. Are you appealing these because you say you're innocent? You didn't kill 13 people? That is correct. You didn't kill 13 people? Again, it would be improper for me to comment in any regard to that question. You have now entered a very rare group of people in this country. You're in the, the ranks of Charlie Manson, Ted Bundy. You claim you didn't commit these murders, but you're right in there now as far as everybody else is concerned. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. They are a product of the times, and these are bloodthirsty times. Even psychopaths have emotions if you dig deep enough, but then again, maybe they don't. Do you have emotions, Richard? No comment. Tell me what kind of emotions you got going through you right now. I'll tell you what, I gave up on love and happiness a long time ago. Why? I, I don't care to explain that. Let, let, the, let the quote stand for itself. People, people in this day and age are brainwashed and programmed like a computer at being nothing more than puppets. This nation, this country is founded in violence. Violent delights tend to have violent ends. It's Madness is something rare in individuals, but in groups, people, and ages, it is a rule. Killing is killing, whether done for duty, profit, or fun. Men murdered themselves into this democracy. You're good at reading your script, Richard, but you're not much at answering my direct questions. A lot was made that you're a devil worshiper. Do you worship the devil? Have you ever studied Satanism? There are different sects of Satanism. Have you studied, just yes or no, have you studied yes, Satanism? Yes, I have. Are you, are you a worshiper of the devil? No comment. Come on, Richard. We're I can tell you a little bit about Satanism. Well, I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you got to say then. It is undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. It is power, power without charity. A Satanist admits to being evil. Do you admit to being evil, Richard? We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? I'm asking you the questions, my friend. <laughs> yes, I am evil. So there. A lot of the prophesizing going on, too, and just his, um, the, in the script, you can hear his script as he Yeah, talks. I was, when the first time I listened to this clip, I was struck by the really large size that he does. He goes... <sighs> like he's remembering what to say. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's like frustrated and also probably doesn't I don't know hasn't spent a lifetime of speaking to others mm -hmm. you know and there's this yeah. like frustration of now I have to 
explain myself or I have to remember what I was supposed to say. Yeah, or, that's what I felt. It was almost like, let me go back to what I was supposed to say, like a script that he was trying to remember his lines. But it's also, a f he's faking. Mm -hmm. He's he's faking a, he's faking being a person right yep, here. Absolutely. And I think that's really exhausting. And I, I can imagine the sort of like, you know, that, you know, people with anxiety and trauma and panic often have to physically sensate ground themselves and mm -hmm. I, I sort of look at him like he's he's like the is like okay I'm in my body mm -hmm. and I can I can do that like I can mm -hmm. be this other person yeah because he doesn't have a sense of self no so I, I agree I think it was like he was developing a persona which he will do through the trial as well mm -hmm. so going back to this trauma model trauma control model or diathesis stress model is let's look at he was exposed to teratogens he developed temporal epilepsy, likely due to multiple head injuries. He witnessed domestic violence as a child and a murder when he was an adolescent. There's also the likelihood of being sexually molested by his brother's teacher when he was seven years old. A combination of sex and violence was sensationalized by his cousin Miguel, and Ramirez began to have violent sexual fantasies of his own. He drops out of high school in ninth grade and becomes addicted to substance. And the paired association of sex and violence is now a permanent restructure in his brain. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just a, a recipe for a psychopath. Temporal uh, lobe epilepsy. So let me talk a little bit about what this is and why it's so relevant. So the temporal lobe is, uh, it's bilaterally involved in vision, memory, sensory input, language, emotion, and comprehension. It's where the auditory cortex is often it's on the side of our heads kind of by the ears mm -hmm. above our ears temporal lobe seizures originate in the temporal lobes of your brain which process emotions and are important for short-term memory um, temporal lobe epilepsy is a chronic disorder of the nervous system characterized by recurrent unprovoked focal seizures that originate in the temporal lobes of the brain and last about one or two minutes it's a long seizure yeah um, it's the most common form of epilepsy with focal seizures. A focal seizure is the temporal is in the, in the temporal lobe may spread to other areas in the brain when it um, may become a focal to a bilateral seizure. So it can go on both sides at once, which is really intense. It's usually diagnosed in childhood or adolescence, which it was for him. Now, the Epilepsy Foundation states that personality changes are controversial and that there has been little evidence of any specific link between the behavioral features and epilepsy itself. So many people feel that these features could just be generalized features of personality changes associated with any form of medical or neurological illness. And some of the behavior changes we have seen in Ramirez are really consistent with this form of epilepsy, mania, depression, altered sexual interest, aggression, anger, and hostility, religiosity, sense of personal destiny, and paranoia. What are your thoughts about that? No, I think it's important to that distinction that we, we nor these large institutions can say these are two things are, you know, uh, cause and effect, right? Right. Um, correlated maybe correlated maybe and we're you're painting a picture of you know 15 to 20 different things that right create this person yeah and we just happen to see lots of commonalities for mm -hmm. other people that we've right talked about so um, needless to say the epilepsy didn't help 
Right. But unlikely the cause of the epilepsy. <laughs> unlikely yeah. the cause, yeah. For those of you with epilepsy, that's not what we're saying. So idea yeah, definitely not. We're not saying that people with epilepsy are psychopaths. No. So uh he also had what are called ideas of reference. Mm-hmm. So he believed that lyrics and songs would be important messages made for him. He believed Billy Idol's Eyes Without a Face, um, which is about a murder on a bus, very much reflected what he was about. So we oftentimes see ideas of reference in psychotic disorders. We can see them in schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorders. So I know that was one of the diagnoses that people were entertaining for him. I imagine disorganized schizophrenia. Was... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then we also have what's called the psychopathy checklist, which we've, I believe, talked about on other episodes. Robert Hare developed the psychopathy checklist. Psychopathy is traditionally an enhanced personality disorder characterized by persistent antisocial behavior, impaired empathy and remorse, and bold, disinhibited, and egotistical traits. So it's also, it's sometimes considered synonymous with sociopathy, um, Depending theoretically where you sit, sociopathy for me a lot of times means there's more of a um, a nurture component to it than a nature component to it. Um, some people think they are synonymous, but most often psychopathy has more of a genetic predisposition to it, and sometimes it's also more physically violent than sociopathy. It's often looked at, um, psychopathy is often looked at as more dangerous and intense form of antisocial personality disorder. Brain anatomy, genetics, and a person's environment may all contribute to the development of psychopathic traits. So we definitely know that there's that there with him. So to give people sort of a frame of reference, normal individuals typically score less than five, usually around like three, and many psychopathic criminals who actually have symptoms of uh, antisocial personality disorder may score 20 to 22. So his score, um, they scored his PCLR at 31. (laughs) My assessment when I did it, I scored him as a 34. Ted Bundy was a 29. <laughs> yeah. So if that gives you any. And then I just want to go through um, some of the factors that make up the psychopathy checklist. And we can maybe discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so glibness or superficial charm, grandiosity, grandiose sense of worth, need for stimulation. So a proneness to boredom. Yeah, high for him, really. Yeah. High. Pathological yeah. lying. Conning, manipulation, lack of remorse or guilt, shallow affect, callousness or lack of empathy, parasitic lifestyle, mm-hmm. poor behavior controls, behavior controls. He was definitely high on that. Mm-hmm. Promiscuous sexual behavior. Uh, yep. Early behavior problems. Yes. Lack of realistic long-term goals. He never really talked about long-term goals. Impulsivity. Yes. Irresponsible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Failure to accept responsibility. Uh, he's kind of, kind of on the fence with that one. Uh, I, th- I don't think he, he is uh, apologetic, but I don't know if he fails to accept his responsibility. Right. Uh, juvenile delinquency, yes. Criminal versatility, yes. So um, Philip Carlo said this. He knew as long as he stayed evil in his heart, Satan would protect him, watch over him, and keep him out of harm's way, in which, in his case, would surely be the green room at San Quentin death row, the gas chamber. So. There it is. There it is. What are your thoughts? I, 
I mean, we'll go, we'll take if, a break before the reflection, but as far as like the, the PCLR or any of that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's a few things I'd like to probably say about, like he just doesn't have the glibness. He doesn't have, no, you know, he doesn't he have does that not. Bundy thing. He mm -mm. doesn't have that. Um, and that's the disorganized piece. He's not manipulative. You know, like he doesn't, he's not very good at the whole, he's trying to in that interview, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm to be manipulative and powerful and controlling and all that. And it just doesn't even his proneness to register. boredom was very high. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And his shallow affect and lack of empathy, very high. Yeah. You can see all that emptiness and parasitic lifestyle. I mean, he was always staying at someone's house or sleeping in the cemetery or, Oh yeah. We didn't over. talk too much about that, but I can't yeah. imagine he had much of a life outside of his killing. I mean, we're not really talking about the, quality of his life outside of what he was doing for that year and a right. half. I mean, I don't know where he was sleeping or any of that, but yeah. I mean, he, he, he was just random. He was I all imagine over. He was a vagrant stayed with his brother from time to time, but then the wife could, would kick him out. Nice I mean, homeless. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just vagrancy wandering and definitely poor behavioral controls. So yeah, I scored him a little bit higher than they scored. I also did it very quick, quickly. Um, but he's certainly higher than Bundy. I think Bundy's just higher on the charm. Mm hmm. They're just scoring in different ways, yeah. but, but still scoring high, mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing to know mm -hmm. about it is that, and I think that's what we, we know and, and are educating about, but also learning ourselves as we go through these is how there's all these commonalities and these similarities, especially in a lot of the childhood events, mm -hmm. but the way they manifest are um, often very unique yeah. to that person. And and although they would all score high on these tests, it's they score high in different ways, and that's how we can see so much variety and the For way sure. things happen. And what what makes you know profiling and hunting these killers um, such a nuanced business for the people who yeah. do it. And one of the things with these tests too, and it's very similar to the way that we score the HCLR and the um, the stable, which is a, a sex sex offender uh, inventory is when you're scoring them, some of the categories that sort of overlap, you don't give this as high of a number. Um, mm. So you'll sort of say, well, because I gave him a three on this, it's related to that on the other one, you might score it a little bit less. So you're not over pathologizing. And even with that, he's scoring between a 31 and a 34. I mean, yeah. that's pretty crazy. It yeah. is. We're going to take a break real quick and have a short segment where we, Wrap this up. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. This is Tara Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Well, two down. Two of these episodes. Yeah. Basically down. It's a lot of information, but I think that... I mean, part of me thinks... Was he ever diagnosed? Did they ever put him on medication when he was in prison? Because he he presents like a disorganized schizophrenic. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, I mean, he's got all, he, you know, you could check all the, like, uh, like I would feel very comfortable diagnosing him with that because. He's got flavors he's of got all, all schizophrenia. The, yeah, I mean, it's, if if we're going by the DSM, which we all have to, he, he ticks all the boxes there. Yep. So the delusions, the paranoia, among other things. The, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the paranoia, the ideas of reference, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Um, I just wonder, I realize he didn't, 
he wasn't a successful serial killer in the sense that he lasted for decades and decades, which no, is often was, the conversations we're having. He was more of like a, a time bomb that went off. Yeah. And just did so much damage in such a little bit, uh, uh, you know, relatively small amount of time. I understand for the survivors and for for the loved ones. It was people. forever. It was yeah. forever. And, and we'll talk about in the next the next episode we're going to get into, and I'm going to orient you guys to the detectives, the main detectives and search team on this case who literally gave up their lives because it was so hard to find him mm. and how these two men almost lost their families and their wives because the, fa the, the, the families had to move out of their, they were so scared that he was going to find the detectives. So one of the detectives, I believe the family moved out in a way and, and there's a, a clip of when they, this all ends where the detective cr is crying. He's like, I'm just so relieved and I get my family back. I mean, they really put so much into finding this guy. Well, he was so single-minded. Um, Ramirez was, and he's a hurricane that you would have to have that kind of focus to catch him. Yep. And that's what they were. And they brought in FBI. They brought in so much of a team. So we're going to get into the detectives, the search team and his capture. And just uh, to throw this out there, there will be a lot of graphic content in the next episode. Okay. So yeah. episode three is going to be a lot of graphic yeah. details. So be warned. And we'll, we'll warn you at the beginning of the episode as well Yeah, next week. And, um, but before that, please turn in on, um, or tune in, rather, on Friday for our Shrink Chat show, which is the lighter side of things and horror movies, etc. So we thank you so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.